Well, while you're still standing, let's pray this prayer together this morning. Ready? Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. Amen? You may be seated. If you will, take your Bibles and meet me in the book of Mark, chapter 9. As we finish up uh, the ninth chapter of Mark, it's taken us uh, several, several weeks to make our way through this chapter, but we are there, and uh, we're going to take a... Uh, take a few weeks off from Mark um, and kind of get ourselves next week ready for uh, Thanksgiving. And then um, we'll do three or four weeks um, of Advent sermons. Again, just trying to get our hearts prepared and ready uh, for uh, this upcoming Christmas season. And then once we get past that, then we'll come back to Mark and pick up in Mark chapter 10 and continue our journey on through the end of Mark with really no breaks, because if the schedule stays right and the Lord wills, we should be able to get to the crucifixion passages um, in the book of Mark right at Easter time. So that's just kind of where we'll be in the next several weeks as it relates uh, to preaching. Now let me tell you something interesting. Um, each week as I prepare to preach, I, I try to the best of my ability put my thoughts in prayer, put my thoughts down on paper um, concerning the sermon. It's good for me to kind of transcript out because it keeps me from chasing rabbit trails and, and make what some people would say are already incredibly long sermons even longer. And so this week, uh, I stuck with my routine. And so what's cool is, is that the program that I use to sermon prep with will actually tell me when my transcript is finished, how long it should take me to preach it. You won't believe what it said this week. 13 minutes. 13 minutes. I said, I was tapping on the program. I was like, something, something's wrong with my program, right? Like, no, I've never done 13. So I copied it and pasted it into another program that does the same thing. And I got the same amount of time. So according to, according to the, y'all don't believe I even pay attention to the clock, but I do. I mean, I, I really do care about your time and my time. So according to this, we should be out by 25 till 12. Now, see, I debated whether I should do that or not because y'all are going to spend more time looking at your watch than you are listening to the sermon. <laughs> yes, Curtis is right. My grandfather, God rest his soul, who told me he didn't hear many of my sermons, but when he came to hear them, he always reminded me that if you can't strike oil in 30 minutes, quit boring. And uh, so, Papa, this might be for you. We'll see. I don't know. Mark chapter 9, verse 42. Whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him 
if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life or eternal life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, because it's better for you to go to heaven lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, gouge it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if, it, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So this morning I've entitled the sermon, Stay Salty. You might have thought it might be entitled, For God's sake, don't go to hell, but that's not the title of it. Stay Salty. I got two points for you this morning. Point number one. Salty Christians consider their way of life. Salty Christians consider their way of life. Remember what, what, what Jesus began doing at, uh, back in chapter 8. In chapter 8, I've said it for a couple of weeks now, Jesus has shifted his... His, his focus from a crowd-based ministry to a core-based ministry. Jesus is honed in on these 12 guys because what happens in Mark chapter 8 is we enter into this final phase of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, in chapter 8, begins to move his life and his ministry towards his death. And, and, and so in chapter 8, we really find the first time that Jesus talks about his impending crucifixion, that he is going to die. And, and you remember how this has caused so much confusion in the mind of the disciples? Like, if you're the Messiah, how can the Messiah be the victorious Messiah of Daniel chapter 7 and yet die? Because he's also the Messiah of Isaiah 53. And that was where, that is why the, the disciples, as I said last week, are having such a hard time uh, uh, balancing out in their mind this paradoxical Jesus, this, this Jesus that can uh, seem to be somewhat of an enigma or a contradiction in terms. How can you be a conquering Messiah like Daniel 7, 7 says you will be, beginning in verse 14, and, and, and how does that, how can that be true and yet you be the Messiah of Isaiah 53, the, the suffering Messiah, the suffering servant uh, of Isaiah 53. And so Jesus is trying to, to help them to understand really who he is in his totality. And he, he's trying to help them to understand. And, and we'll see this once we come back to Mark, when we get to chapter 10. And Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus is trying to instill within his disciples in these final weeks that he has with them the, the very foundational truth of what it really means to be a disciple of his, what it looks like to follow him, because a disciple 
in the Jewish mindset is someone who replicates what their teacher has taught them, what their rabbi has instilled to them. They were supposed to replicate who Jesus was. That's why when when, uh, Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration and the man says, I brought my son to you to heal you, but but you weren't here, so I I turned to your replicators, your your disciples, those who are supposed to be like you and, and to do the things that you did, and I turned to them, but yet they could not They could not do it, and that's why he said to Jesus, if you can. Because now he had doubts about Jesus, because Jesus' disciples could not do what Jesus himself did, which would always call into question whether that rabbi or or that teacher was was truly legitimate. And so Jesus, you know, again, is he's having to... He's having to repeat a lot of what he's already taught because the disciples still have yet to really wrap their arms around uh, uh, fully what Jesus is trying to teach them as it relates to what it means to be a disciple. And so, you know, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus starts, man, he starts using some really hard language. He's like, if you're going to be my disciple, you got to pick up your cross and follow me. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, you, you, you got you to lose the world, right? He says, how can you gain the whole world without losing your soul? And the, and the answer to that is, you, you can't. You, you, you've got to pick up your cross and you've got to die daily. He says, look, if you're going to be my disciple, you, you've got to be last. You, you can't be first. You, you've got to put others ahead of yourself. This is what it means to be a disciple. And so what Jesus is doing is he's, he's just laying on top imagery on top of imagery on top of imagery on top of imagery. He brings a little child into his midst and he says, look, if you're going to be great in the kingdom of God, you, you, you've got to serve the least of these. You, you've got to give your life for those who can give you nothing in return. That's what it looks like to be my disciple. And so again, this is just Man, Jesus is just piling imagery on top of imagery on top of imagery. And then we get to the close of chapter 9. And this is some wild and crazy language that Jesus is using. I mean, you read it and you're just like, I mean, this is, this is, seems to be, you know, uh, 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 just mind-blowing what he's saying. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, better that a, a, a noose be put around your neck, tied to a millstone, and you thrown into the deepest waters to drown. You, you want to you wanna be my disciple, then you got to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye and chop off your, your foot, because if any of that causes you to sin and causes you to stumble and causes you to fall... you've got to take drastic actions so that you don't go to hell. It's just, it's interesting that uh, TJ, many of you know TJ who was once here and on staff with us and now is pastoring a church up in Nashville. Uh, I found out several weeks ago that he and I are preaching through the same book of the Bible at the same time. And matter of fact, we're kind of following the same flow of the text. And so this week I texted him and I said, man, I said, are you having any trouble with 42 through 50? And he's like, absolutely. And so we just kind of text back and forth this week, trying to help each other out. 
to understand the text. And so where I landed was exactly what I'm about to say to you this morning. Salty Christians. And so Jesus is speaking not to unbelievers. He's, he's speaking to believers. And, and what's the point of the passage? Jesus is saying, listen, Christians are supposed to be salty. They're, they're, they are supposed to be God's agent of preservation within the earth. They, they, are, they are God's agent. I mean, look, if you think the world is really bad, imagine if there were no Christians in the world. Christians are a salt. We, 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 we help to keep back more evil than there could be if Christians weren't here. And that's what salt did. It, it, re, it retarded the spoiling process of meat because they didn't have refrigeration in that day. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, I'm leaving, but I'm leaving you here. Why? Because you are here to be an agent of the kingdom of God in this world. And so look at verse 42. Jesus says, um, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him that a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. You know what Jesus is saying? He is saying here, Christians never sin in a vacuum. What does that mean? He, that means that you, even though you may sin alone and in the dark, that your sin always has an effect on other people. Our sin always affects ourselves, and in turn, it will affect others. Jesus wants us to consider our way of life, mainly how we sin and how that sin affects those around, around us, especially fellow believers. In a world filled with stumbling blocks, Jesus says, consider your way of living for the sake of your brothers and your sisters. How many of us live our life in light and in view of how it affects those around us? How many of you restrain certain behaviors in your life because you know if that behavior is carried out, that it is going to greatly affect negatively some around you? Mom and dad, we, we need to consider greatly, especially our children and especially our children who are yet still young in the faith and how our own faith and how our, our, how our own way of living is affecting our children as young believers. And if we're going to be salty Christians, if we're going to be Christians that are going to be effective in a world that is soured by sin, and, 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 a, and, and a world that is being spoiled by sin, then we must restrain some of our behavior for the sake of others. And Jesus is serious about this. And he is saying that people that will not, I'm not saying that, he's not saying people that do this one time, but he, what he is saying here, and in in it's the tenses of the verbs that doesn't always come out very well in English, but the verb tenses in the original language basically are saying this, people who live their life constantly leading little ones, talking about not children, but he's talking about fellow believers. Anyone who is constantly leading other believers 
into sin, it's better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the sea. That's how serious Jesus is about this. But listen, I don't want you to think that Jesus is some angry, belligerent God who's just vindictive and and wants to punish people. Jesus is the loving Savior who bled and died so sins that can be forgiven. Jesus here is not speaking out of hatred. He is not speaking out of vindication. He is speaking here from love. Let me put, put forward two considerations for being salty uh, to those around us. First, we must put to death our flesh. That's number one, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And put away our freedom. The first consideration is obvious. We must put to death our flesh. I take that from Romans eight seventeen, and I'll, I'll deal with that in a minute. The second consideration is not so obvious. We, we must put away our freedom. There are times in our lives where we have Christian liberty to act in a way that is not prohibited by Scripture. But it is a problem, and it could be a problem, for a fellow believer. Paul put, it, Paul put away his freedom for the sake of others because his motivation was the gospel. If you go and read 1 Corinthians 9, and we don't have time to do that this morning, uh, you, you can see that Paul is saying, you know what? I have the right to do X, Y, and Z, but when I am, but when I am around people, that X, Y, and Z behavior for them is a stumbling block. I put away my freedom to live that way. Why? Because I'm not going to be a stumbling block to my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to cause one of these little ones intentionally to fall into sin because I have that freedom. Paul says, I don't want to be a stumbling block. I want to be a stepping stone to someone's faith. There are times in our lives where we have Christian liberty to act in a way that's prohibited by Scripture. Because it is a problem for our fellow believer. Paul put away his freedom for the sake of others because his motivation was the gospel. Thus Paul determined what to put away in his present circumstance by what advanced the gospel. Let me give you one example. And I'm not picking on tattoos. If if I did that, David wouldn't be here. Uh, Nothing sinful about tattoos. Okay, nothing at all. Now, could a tattoo be sinful? Right, it could be. Right, David? David and I have had this conversation. He, he totally agrees with me on that. But if, you were to, if we were to get a trip to Haiti, and David said, hey, I, I want to go on the trip to Haiti. I said, man, that's great. I want you to go. But I need to tell you something about going to Haiti. You're going to have to keep all your tattoos covered up. Why? Because I believe that they're evil? No. Because I believe they're sinful? Absolutely not. Why? Because in Haiti, tattoos are, are um, looked at as being evil. Why? Because tattoos are always considered to be a part of the uh, satanic religion of the country of Haiti, uh, voodoo. Only people who are voodoos, 
who, or who participate in a voodoo lifestyle get tattoos. So what would, what would David do as, as a believer? He would say, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do that. I've got all the freedom in the world to, to do what I'm doing, but yet when I go into a different context for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of being able to share Jesus with other people who don't know Jesus, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do whatever I've got to do to keep something that is right for me to do from being a stumbling block for somebody else. You understand that? That's just one example. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that there are times in our life where we don't want to be a stumbling block to somebody else. So what do we do? Even though we have the right to do it, we don't do it for the sake of the other person and the other people. Those who are studious will say that Paul speaks of his behavior among unbelievers. And this is true. But if such considerations is necessary amongst unbelievers, how, how much more among believers, right? How much more among believers? Jesus' consequential words are not loveless, but loving. He is not indifferent, but involved in how we live our lives. Jesus, who the Bible says is our elder brother, is treating us like younger brothers. His words establish a family interaction. Jesus knows that we will sin against each other unintentionally. It is our intentional sin he seeks to steer us away from with his unsettling words. We're a family. We're going to sin against each other enough as it is unintentionally. Jesus is saying what, what he's after is those sins that we do that are intentional against each other. Right? Come on now. Nobody in here is intentionally sinned against another brother or sister of Christ. Nobody's given somebody else a piece of their mind in Jesus' name. Hmm? Okay. We're all guilty. And this is the, this is the, this is the kind of living that Jesus is after here. You're going to have enough to be forgiven of unintentionally. But let's put an end to the intentionalness of some of our sinning. As children of the King, there is an expectation of behavior because of our adoption experience. Seeking the demise of a brother or sister is not in keeping with being a child of God. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been given a name. We've been given a position. We are, as John says, we are the children of God. And therefore, we should live like children of God. And living like children of God doesn't seek the demise of brothers and sisters in Christ. James, Jesus', Jesus half-brother, teaches us that we love God because He first loved us. And this love is expressed in how? Loving our brother and sister in Christ. You know what James says? How can you say that you love God when you can't even love the people that you can see, your own brothers and sisters in Christ? We are not to be a stumbling block, but a stepping stone. We are to provoke one another to love and good works. So let's look at the last verse this morning. Jesus wants us to stay salty. 
Because salty Christians cut off what cuts them off from God. Salty Christians cut off what cuts them off from God. Remember all of that eye plucking, hand chopping, feet cutting off? Let me be very, very clear. Jesus is not asking us to literally do that. If he was, then Jesus would be violating the own, his own teachings in Scripture. Why? Because the Scripture teaches that self-mutilation is a sin. It's a sin. Self-mutilation is a sin. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is using what we call hyperbole, an exaggerated language to get, to, to get across a spiritual point. Jesus is saying, if there's something in your life that's causing you to sin, then you've got to get rid of it. Why? Because as a child of God, that's what children of God do. They, they get rid of anything that would cut them off from God. Some read these words of Jesus as threatening, right? Seems pretty threatening to me. And yet Jesus is imploring us to action based on love. Do you hear the love of Jesus in those, wor in those words? Cut it off. Why? Because if you don't, it's going to cut you off from God. God proved His love for us by cutting off His Son from His presence and crucifying Him so that He can say to sinners, come to Me. John 3.16 shows us the extent, of God, the extent God's love will go to bring sinners into His family, right? That's the extent to which God will go. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that what? Whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the extent to which God will go to bring sinners into His family. While Mark chapter 9, verse 43 through 47 teaches us to what extent family members will go because of that love. Did you get that? Because that's where I'm ending. I got, I got two sentences and two scriptures to read and I'm done. But listen, that is what is so important. Jesus shows the extent to which God will go to bring sinners into His family. And now Jesus is giving us this verse to say to us that are in His family, this is the extent that you will go because of the love of God that you have experienced. Why? Because cutting off that which, that which cuts you off from God is consistent with love. Just as cutting cancer out of your body is consistent with living. Church, this morning, Christian, you need to look at, we need to identify in, in our life, what is cutting me off from God? And then we need to cut that out of our life. None of us, if we knew that a deadly cancer was growing in our body, would not go and have it cut and removed. Chuck Hurst, who just had 
surgery. What, what happened? They found a big mass the size of an apple, a cancerous mass. And they said, Chuck, you got to have it cut out or, or you could die. You don't have to think long about that, right? You don't have to say, well, doctor, you sure are being mean to me. No, you're saying, thank you for loving me enough. I mean, imagine a doctor sitting in a room with the nurses. Well, I don't know, should we tell him or not tell him? I mean, it's pretty bad. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt him. He, his feelings might get hurt. He might get sad. I mean, do we tell him or do we not tell him? Doctors take an oath of love. What? Do anything and everything possible to save a person's life. That's what doctors do. Why? Because it's an oath of love. And Jesus took an oath of love. And he sets his disciples down and he says, Look, there's things inside of you that will, that will seek to cut you off from me. But here's what you do. You cut that out. When we begin to see God's true love for us, His asking is not too much. Listen, He is not asking us to earn His love by cutting these things off. But He is asking us to cut these off to enter into His love more deeply. Amen? He is not asking us to cut this off so that by some means we prove that we really love Jesus. Look, Jesus, here's how much I love you. Pluck it out. Cut it off. No, we already know how much He loves us, and we look at ourselves and we say, what in the world is keeping me from going deeper into His love, from understanding His love in greater ways? It's this stuff that still remains in me called sin that is killing me and cutting me off from a deeper relationship with Him. Let's end right here. Why? You remember I started out with saying Jesus wants us to be salty? He wants us to be salty? He's asking us to do this because in doing what He's asking us, it does take us into a deeper relationship with God. But listen, why did God bring you into His family to begin with? Number one, so that you could be in His family, because He wants you to be in His family, because He loves sinners, and He loves making sinners into saints. But listen, God brings us into His family, not only to establish a relationship with us, but to do this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. Listen. Our sin affects other people. Our sin affects our life. And Jesus is saying, listen. I saved you. I made you my, my own. I brought you in as my own possession. I gave you a place in my family. Why? So that you can go into this world as an agent, a salty agent. You can go into this world and proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Listen, you were saved to be salty. But the only way you and I are going to be salty 
is that first we've got to consider our way of life. We've got to consider how our way of life might affect somebody else's way of life. We, we've got to look at maybe some stuff in our life that we're doing that we have the freedom to do as a Christian, but we need to restrain that freedom around certain people and in certain places for the sake of other Christians. We, we, we need to consider our way of living and how our way of living it might be negatively affecting other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we need to turn inward and we need to identify in our life what needs to be cut out of my life. What's cutting me off from God? Let's pray. What is that this morning, church? Maybe you think already of maybe some relationships that you have hurt because of your way of living. That the fact that you just you, you didn't consider other people and how your your actions and your words and your way of living is, is affecting someone else. And it could be that that's not a consideration of yours because you haven't done what Jesus said and, and that is you, you haven't looked internally to those parts of your life that for sometimes Jesus has been speaking to you about. And he has been saying, this has got to change. This, this is not the way my children behave. This, this behavior is not in keeping with, with who you are and what you claim to be. And so the loving Father is, has been prodding you for some time. But this needs to be dealt with. But this is serious. This is nothing to play around with. You're not only hurting other people, but you're hurting yourself. And He's not asking you to do it as to prove your love to Him, but so that you can really experience in greater ways how much He really does love you. Father, help us this morning to see and not just to see, but to, but to hear and to fully understand how great your love for us is. You really do want to have this relationship with us. That we come to know your love in ways that we could have never known apart from this. And so I pray that as we hear your love and as we see your love, that we will respond to your love this morning so that we can know more of it in the days ahead. And most of all, so that others around us can see more of your love in your people and thereby know that we are your disciples. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.
this last song together this morning.